Coming into the last weekend before the holiday season officially starts with Thanksgiving next week, although I guess in the stores it started three months ago. But before we get to the weekend, we have a podcast episode. It's Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn. I'm here with Laura Johnston, Layla Atassi, and Lisa Garvin. Lisa, now that the voters have spoken on abortion, it's time for the Ohio Supreme Court to have a say. What did it do Thursday with regard to how issue one might play out? Ohio Supreme Court Justice, Chief Justice Sharon Kennedy, uh, sent a letter to uh, A.G. Yost and, and plaintiffs in the lawsuit against this 2019 heartbeat law, saying that they have until December 7th to file written arguments on whether passage of issue one will have effect on that law. And that's the same date by the way, that uh, the new constitutional amendment does go into effect on December 7th. So uh, Dave Yost did issue a legal analysis before the election, and he said that issue one would invalidate the fetal heartbeat law. Abortion providers say that the heartbeat law was unconstitutional even before the election. They say that privacy laws extended to protecting the right to have an abortion. So any and all current laws regarding abortion must be challenged by lawsuit. Then the courts have final say and potentially the Ohio Supreme Court will have the final say to decide how issue one affects every particular law that gets challenged. Reproductive rights advocates say they will challenge some of the three dozen anti-abortion laws currently on the Ohio books, although they don't have any specifics just yet. Well, this one seems obvious. It seems like Dave Yost is going to have to file a motion saying we withdraw our objection to the suit. This law is now unconstitutional based on what voters did, and it should be invalidated. I mean, he's already on the record saying that. So how could he go to the Supreme Court and say, you know what? I changed my mind. I still think there's a loophole. Uh, And it seems like Sharon Kennedy knows that. And she's saying, come on, guys, put in your briefs. Let's move on. We want to get this off our docket. Uh, I hope that's the way this goes. If there's some shenanigans that get played, people in Ohio are going to be pretty upset that Dave Yost is trying to invalidate their vote. And he wants to run for governor. So, Right, right. And he's pretty level-headed despite his conservative views, I think. But the state had earlier argued that providers didn't have standing to sue against the fetal heartbeat law. If the court agrees with that, then the fetal heartbeat law would go back into effect. It can't go into effect, though, because we just passed a constitutional amendment saying that they have a right to abortion. There's just no way that that can stand uh, in the long run. And the smart thing, the thing that would give voters confidence in their elected leaders is to do the right thing. The law has been invalidated. Make that clear. Move on. Uh, But if they don't, of course, it'll play out even bigger in 2024 because voters will not be having any. You're listening to Today in Ohio. We have pointed out numerous times that Congressman Dave Joyce fails to show much of a spine over and over and over again. But a committee he leads in Congress sure showed one Thursday with regard to one of the biggest liars ever elected, George Santos. Layla, what did Joyce's committee find? Joyce leads an ethics subcommittee of the House Ethics Committee, and and they unanimously concluded that there was substantial evidence that George Santos's campaign committee filed false or incomplete Federal Election Commission reports, that he blatantly stole money from his election campaign and filed fraudulent financial disclosure statements with the House of Representatives. The report 
noted that Santos has lied about things like his degrees, his religion, his work experience, his family, and, and a bunch of other biographical details. But the most severe lies have been the ones about his finances, and the report accuses him of profiting from his candidacy in a way that brings disgrace to the House. It says Santos deceived donors into providing what they thought were contributions to his campaign, but were in fact payments for his personal benefit. It says he reported fictitious loans to his political committees to induce donors and party committees to make further contributions to his campaign and then diverted more campaign money to himself as as repayments of those fictitious loans. And it says he used his connections to high-value donors and other political campaigns to obtain additional funds for himself through fraudulent or otherwise questionable business dealings. So the report says he should be publicly condemned for all of that. And the House Ethics Committee has said that they're going to refer potential federal criminal violations to the Justice Department for further review. Yeah, I mean, he's a crook. It's He's just not a liar. He's a serious criminal based on this evidence. And what's sad is the evidence was pretty strong against him earlier in the year. And Congress could have ejected him then and and built some credibility, but they decided not to. They have to eject him now. This guy is as bad as it gets. I mean, he made up all sorts of fanciful stuff about his background that all came out after he was elected. But this is just complete financial fraud right. using his campaign to enrich himself. And the stuff he spent on, like Ferragamos and all sorts of <laughs> Botox and Vegas. It's like OnlyFans website. Yeah, yeah OnlyFans. Only like this guy is a low rent loser who <laughs> used the election to try and enrich himself. And he put out a statement claiming that this is just a slam. I'm a good guy, right. but I'm not going to run again. Yeah, he tweeted that that it's a disgusting politicized smear that shows how low our federal government has sunk. And, and yeah, he says he's not seeking re-election in 2024. It's like, what's the line? You can't break up with me. I'm breaking up with you. <laughs> <laughs> well, you want to talk about how low our government has sunk. Somebody like him got elected to Congress. It's pathetic and he needs to be gone. If we and then the him. House wanted to keep him because they wanted to keep that Republican vote. Right. The ends justify the means. We'll keep a liar and a criminal in our ranks because of that all-important vote. Doesn't matter what we stand for. Although I can't imagine they're not going to eject him now. You're listening to Today in Ohio. First, it was going back to transgender issues to see if the base could get their passion and hate going again. Now they're looking to elevate guns to the consciousness. What is the Ohio House Republican team doing about guns as they try to get back some momentum following their embarrassing losses on abortion and marijuana last week? Laura. They want Ohio to be a, quote, Second Amendment sanctuary state. And basically, they want to prevent state and local authorities from helping to enforce any federal laws or rules regarding guns or ammunition. And this bill could pass before the end of the year. Apparently, 17 other states have done this. It reminds me yesterday when we were talking about transgender issues, it was 23 other states. So there's a big cohort of the United States that's moving in this direction. But the bill cleared the Ohio House committee earlier this week. It would make it illegal for any public official or employee to enforce, attempt to enforce, or participate in any way the enforcement of any federal acts, executive orders, administrative orders, blah, 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 with firearms and 
accessories or ammunition. And they claim that police want this, but the police actually say, no, this is going to hamstring our ability to work with federal officials to prevent and solve crimes and have huge unintended consequences. This is a symptom of what has happened with the, the kind of biased broadcast media politicians so desperate to get their sound bites so that they can play to their fringe. Jim Jordan does it all the time. J.D. Vance has become the worst about it. That, that's what this is about. This has nothing to do with good governance. There's nobody trying to take guns away from anybody in Ohio, but it plays to the base. We, we've got to do something to rally the passions of that base because we've lost so much momentum this year with issue one in August, issue one and two in November. So uh, it's not a surprise. A week after the election, we're talking about transgender. We're talking about guns. I, I, what, what's next? I mean, we talked yesterday, immigrants. Is somebody going to start making the big push on immigrants? Is that what J.D. Vance's next nonsense press release is? Well, I could entirely see that or in the state house because obviously this is happening at a state level and it's not just Ohio. And you think we talk all the time about partisan politics and how far apart the the very fringe of each party is, whereas most people, most citizens who live here are somewhere in the middle. But you think the states are like that, too. We have these states that are just on opposite directions of each other. They don't want to govern. They're not trying to do anything that serves the state or controls the budget or looks at tax dollars. It's all about the culture war. How can we get attention to rally our base to, to get passionate, to get hateful? And mm -hmm. it's just it's one of the silliest things. There is no one anywhere trying to take anybody's guns away in Ohio and to, well, to just, act like you need this law to stop the feds from taking away the guns. It's just nonsense. It's not like we even have passed federal gun rights regulations. <laughs> like it's impossible. Yeah. The whole thing is just, it's such a, we have such a pathetic legislature. It's one of the, it's probably the worst version we've ever had. You're listening to Today in Ohio. A TV reporter just doing his job got arrested and slammed to the ground in East Palestine during a Mike DeWine press conference. Lisa, what is he doing about that? He went and filed a federal suit in a Youngstown court. News Nation TV reporter Evan Lambert filed suit against the Ohio National Guard, Columbiana County Sheriff Brian McLaughlin, East Palestine Police Chief James Brown III, and officers who arrested him on that February 8th incident. He was doing a live shot at the uh, Mike DeWine press conference about the East Palestine train wreck. Uh, National Guard Major General John Harris ordered Lambert to stop, which he did, but apparently Harris became irate and he screamed and he shoved Lambert. Several officers tried to stop Harris from doing that, uh, but Sheriff McLaughlin ordered Lambert to leave after Harris walked away from the confrontation. Lambert refused to leave, so officers shoved him into a hallway at the, at the uh, press conference site and took him to the ground. He was detained five hours in the East Palestine jail, charged with trespassing and resisting arrest. The charges were later dropped by Attorney General Dave Yost, who said Lambert did nothing wrong. And even DeWine chimed in, you know, this happened during his press conference. He says that arrest just wasn't right. It wasn't right. Reporters are allowed to do their jobs. And this is a matter of how much money this reporter is going to get because he's going to get some. You can't do that. He wasn't doing anything anything offensive. He was just doing his job reporting on the ground at a press conference. 
And these authoritarian law officers decided they were going to tell him what's what. Uh, taking him to the ground, detaining him for five hours, it's just not okay. That's not what America stands for. And I hope he wins. I think he's got a lot of legal legs to stand on. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Who is the South Euclid state lawmaker under fire for his confrontational manner and the way he mistreats colleagues? And Layla, who did he berate now? It's State Representative Elian Forhan. He's a Democrat from South Euclid. And on Thursday, Ohio House Minority Leader Allison Russo sent a letter that strips him of his committee assignments and the use of caucus staff. This is a move that comes after several people in Columbus said that he yelled and used profanity at a fellow Democratic lawmaker, State Representative Munira Abdullahi, before a caucus meeting on Wednesday afternoon. And that altercation was about an Israeli flag that he had hung outside his office. Staff had asked him to remove it, and he posted a video saying that he disagreed with their demand. And then Abdullahi asked him to remove the video from social media because she worried that it vilified the staff members and could make them targets. So then began this argument in which witnesses say Forehand was aggressive and verbally abusive. So the letter calls his behavior a continued pattern of harassment, hostility, and intimidation of colleagues and staff, and and basically points out a refusal to accept responsibility for his actions. Back in May, Russo had reprimanded him over the treatment of a Cleveland Heights hairdresser who had come to Columbus to testify in opposition to a cosmetology regulation bill that he supported. So it does seem that we this is the second time in quite a short period where we've seen this kind of behavior from him. Well, and I just want to point out for everybody that says we only beat up on Republicans in the state house, we do because they're in a supermajority, so they're the ones in control. But when a Democrat misbehaves, we beat up on the Democrat too. What's sad about this is the Israel Hamas war has much of this nation on edge. There's there's so much anxiety and passion involved that you would think your elected leaders would try and calm it. I mean, here's somebody a local Northeast Ohio person, he knows how inflamed this is. And rather than try and be the calming influence, he's roiling it and making it worse. Yeah. And also the story says that he was actually working on kind of a ceremonial ceasefire statement uh, that, that suggested that he favors peace, a peaceful resolution, but yet (laughs) I don't know what, I don't know what his problem is. He just can't, can't control himself. I mean, it's interesting how Democrats are talking about this problem and, and, and some have called for his ouster. I mean, you don't really see that very often. I mean, we just talked about uh, Santos and how his Repu- his Republicans are rallying around him. But David Brock, the chairman of the Cuyahoga County Democratic Party, said a lot of people in the party are really upset. And what makes it worse is that it seems the target of his behavior has been women. And that's just unacceptable. Yeah, the whole thing's unacceptable. And because it's a continuing pattern, they ought to think about kicking them out. It's not good for Ohio when its elected leaders behave this way. It's not good in the nation. I mean, this week we had fistfights break out in Congress. Mm. Our elected leaders are behaving like children, and it sends a terrible message to children. I was going to say, my kids are not that bad. They don't fight in public. (laughs) (laughs) They don't fight with each other at all. But it's this whole caustic nature. You know, I blame it all on Donald Trump. He brought this hatred so much out into the fore and he's still out there doing it calling his opponents vermin but we got to stop it we've got to have leaders lead again you're listening to today in ohio 
what is the cheapest grocery store in Cuyahoga County? And it's not what you'd expect. And Laura, the price difference between the stores can be staggering. Absolutely. And this is obviously somewhat subjective. There's no way to absolutely say the cheapest grocery store. It depends on what you buy, whether you want name brands, you know, and, and how big your family is basically. But Sean tried to do this as systematically as possible. Sean McDonald, who writes our Saving You Money column. And it's Meyer, surprisingly, and which is different than what he found last year when he did Walmart, Walmart and Aldi were the cheapest. This year, he looked at a larger array of items. He looked at 50 and he tried to match brands and sizes wherever possible, but it's very difficult. It's not like every store carries the same thing. So we actually reached out to colleagues in the newsroom to see what they buy on their weekly grocery trips to try to look at what an average American family might buy. But at these 53 items, Meyer came out at the lowest at 183.17 for the cart. Walmart was at 188. Aldi came in at 191. One reason with Aldi is that they didn't have 14 of the items. So he substituted costs at Giant Eagle or Target. Obviously, if you have to go to more than one store, that's inconvenient. And then Mark's Target, Giant Eagle, Acme Fresh Markets. Dave's Markets and Heinen's was the most expensive at $250.99. I don't <laughs> he looked at Whole Foods because I'm pretty sure that would end up higher <laughs> than, than Heinen's. I was surprised, though, at how much more Heinen's was than the lowest. That's a, that's a lot of money. I mean, that's just surprisingly big gulf uh, between the stores. Can, can I jump in? Because I was really shocked by this because a couple weeks ago, I shopped at Meyer for the first and last time in my life. <laughs> I was really curious because I'd never been there before. And I wanted to know what is this place got going for it that all the other big box stores didn't. And I was really disappointed. I did a lap around the kind of department store half of it to price check some basic stuff. And I was looking through their kids' clothing. And that stuff I found to be extremely expensive. I mean, a kid's winter coat that you could buy at Costco for like $30 was 70 bucks. Wow. And I was guffawing out loud about the prices <laughs> so that other people could what join me food? in displeasure. And maybe Sean found the groceries to be cheaper, but I found the produce to be moldy and teeming with fruit flies on that particular day. And I couldn't believe that anyone at all was shopping there. So... Gross. Layla has a thing about fruit flies. Well, <laughs> once they get into your house, they are hard to get out. I had a summer where we I vacuumed them off the ceiling of my kitchen. It was not a pretty sight. But um, it, it totally depends on what you're buying, when you're buying it. What Sean said is this week, these things were cheaper at Meyer because of sales. He used sales prices when available. If you buy it a different week, it might be more expensive. And you know, do you care about whether you're getting name brand Ritz crackers? I am 100% fine with the Aldi no name brand, but not everybody is. So um, I think once you find a grocery store you like, that's you tend to be a very loyal shopper. And, you know, Heinen's is an incredibly pleasant grocery experience. When I go there and they have green um, tomatoes, which I love to get, and not everyone does, it's just like, oh, this is this is so pleasant. 
Yeah, I guess. I just, it threw me that it, what was it, $50 difference for a grocery uh, Well, between cart? the cheapest, it was about 67 yeah. yeah. I mean, that that is a huge amount of money. I mean, there's really not a lot of difference between the ones that are on the low end, whether it's Meyer, Walmart, or whatever it is. But when you start looking at the ones on the top end, people can save quite a bit of money by not going to the Heinen's. I just, it was, I didn't see that coming and uh, found it to be very interesting. Sean, always comes up with an interesting approach to his saving you money column. He did it again this time. This is a talker. You're listening to Today in Ohio. All right, Lisa, what's the newest installation in Cleveland's revered cultural gardens? It is a 12-foot-tall, 8-ton marble statue of a Vietnamese woman. It was installed in the Vietnamese cultural garden after many delays. The Vietnamese garden, I believe, is the newest one. It was They broke ground in 2020, but it's been empty until now. It sits on Martin Luther King between East 88th Street and East Boulevard. The first statue crashed in shipping and had to be totally redone from scratch. And then they suffered COVID delays. And then the second statue, which has been installed, took 45 days to get here by boat and four hours to install on site. This is going to be one of several marble statues to be featured in the Vietnamese Cultural Garden. And it's going to cost a little north of a million dollars when it's all said and done. The marble comes from the Marble Mountains in Da Nang, Vietnam. Apparently, marble cars is a very common profession there, and there are lots of artisans that are actually right there at the base of the Marble Mountains. Uh, Cleveland resident Giahoa Ryan, she came to Northeast Ohio in 1971 after meeting her husband. She established the Friendship Foundation of American Vietnamese in 1993 to help Vietnamese immigrants and to honor the American soldiers who fought in the Vietnam War. She sponsored this the new cultural garden and is helping to bring these statues over. There are 20,000 Vietnamese in Ohio and 5,600 right here in the greater Cleveland area. Her backstory was as interesting as the story on, on the statue getting here and her commitment to Northeast Ohio and helping the Vietnamese community. So very cool story. And it's a striking statue that I guess you'll see as you come off the interstate, it's going to be the first thing you see as you enter the gardens on MLK Drive. Yeah, that's what she said when you get off I-90 there. So I'm looking forward to it. I usually, because I walk the cultural gardens pretty regularly, but I never get any further north than Italy. So I need to go further north. <laughs> <laughs> All right. You're listening to Today in Ohio. For most of its history, Cleveland City Council did not have a public comment section at its meetings, preferring that people who wish to speak on issues do so at committee meetings where legislation is hashed out. Now that comments have been added to meetings, some chaos has ensued. Surprise, surprise. Layla, how does the council want to deal with that? And what's the reaction to their plan? So Council President Blaine Griffin has grown pretty tired of Council's public comment period being run as kind of an open mic night where anyone can air any grievance. And and lately that annoyance has intensified has intensified because a large group of Palestinian supporters has been showing up for council meetings for the past several weeks. And they've made comments demanding that Griffin and Mayor Justin Bibb walk back pro-Israeli comments that they made at the start of the war. Griffin says that letting anyone speak on any topic has become disruptive to council business and that the comments folks have been making, which he says have been anti-Semitic and anti-LGBTQ in recent weeks, 
that those comments make people feel generally unsafe, and he doesn't want that to be the case for people coming to City Hall for, for these meetings. So the rule changes he's suggesting would limit commenters to only talking about a single item currently under consideration by council. That is defined as any legislation that has been introduced or pending before council or a matter that is currently in discussion before all or part of the council body. The policy is getting a lot of mixed reviews from council members. They had a caucus meeting this week to talk about it. Some members like Councilman Mike Polensic agree completely with Griffin. He said comments in, in recent weeks have made him want to just walk right out of chambers. But others like Councilwoman Rebecca Moore say, you know, hey, I, I might not agree with what someone has to say, but she wants to hear from them. She even said she would make it a point to undermine this new policy if it is enacted. And she would exchange emails with anyone who would like to come com comment at council because creating that paper trail qualifies it as a matter that's pending before a part of the council body. Very sneaky, and I love it. <laughs> when, when I was a reporter covering City Hall, I was actually glad they didn't have a public comment section. I hated the council comment section because the council people <laughs> would get up and make these long, boring statements elongating the meeting. And as a reporter, you're on deadline. You're trying to get your story done. It just made it worse. And for a century, these folks had withstood the pressure to have public comment because they knew what would happen. This was completely predictable. It's that debate about you should be hearing from your constituents versus you're trying to get the work of this city done. And when they opened up the door, you knew it was going to go this way, that people were going to come in and you're going to have people with mental health issues just spouting off. Didn't you tell me that one person just got up and started reading a roster of council members? No, no, something? no. And actually, actually, this is what it, what that story is. And, um, and I am curious what you think about it. So their council is facing the threat of a First Amendment lawsuit from a guy named Chris Martin, who's being represented by Case Western Reserve University's First Amendment Law Clinic. Because at a recent council meeting, he was reading aloud the names of council members who have received money from the council leadership fund, which is a political action committee that Blaine Griffin controls. And Griffin warned him not to impugn the character of council members. And he was like, well, that's not what I'm doing. I'm just saying that these people received support from the council leadership fund. So he continued reading the names and Griffin cut his mic so what do you think about that? Well, the easiest way they can avoid a First Amendment lawsuit is to just end the public comment, because then you're not you're not filtering what people say. You're just going back to the way it was for a century. Uh, I don't the know. The optics I don't of know. that are terrible. I don't. The optics of it are terrible, but they but they did it for a hundred years. This is a long history, yeah, and they when did they, when they rolled out public comment. It was with this big fanfare of wanting to know what people have to say, and yeah. that was like a year ago. I know, so. I know. It, look, in in the optics, of course, you should have a public comment section where people can come in and let you know what they're thinking. It's the city's, it's the the people's hall. This is the people's business. But it does then create these problems where people say horrible, racist, defensive things, and you've got to figure out a way to control that. But the minute you do, you get into First Amendment concerns. So I don't know what the answer is. I just you could see this coming a mile away and they're in a tough spot now because they're they they can't you can't have people get up and say anti-Semitic things in this big meeting and it's just not going to work the council can't be a place for hate speech you know what it reminds me of 
It reminds me of when we had a comment section and it was filled with <laughs> racist, hateful stuff. And we turned it off because of that. We tried everything we could to clean it up, but we were not successful. It and people do accuse us of, of trampling their First Amendment right by doing that. And we had to we had to actually respond to comments to try to keep them clean. We had to oh, it was a nightmare. En- we were trying to elevate the people. comments by by engaging with people. But but I mean we're a private company. We have every right to to control how people use our platform. But this is city council. This is supposed to be the people's house. I mean, that was the argument that gave rise to the public comment period. Yeah, maybe they create a section before the meeting begins where they have the comments. I don't know what they do. I, we I were will talking say, about moving comments to the end of the meeting so that they can at least get through city business. Yeah, but the and problem with that solution. is for people that have kids and need to get home, you're making it inconvenient. I, look, I don't know what the answer is. I know it was coming. I should say the best thing about canceling our comments is we did it right on the eve of the pandemic. And thank heavens we did. Can you imagine what those comments would have been like during the pandemic? <sighs> Interesting. We'll be following this to see how Blaine Griffin comes up with his solution. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Laura, how did Cleveland make a list of the 50 best places in the world to travel next year? I don't really know how we made the list, but 20 travel and leisure staffers thought that we should be. They wanted, they were where thoughtful, curious travelers should consider in 2024. And a lot of it has to do with events that we're having. Um, World-class expansions, they say, the rebirth of historic hotels. So we made the big city thrills category, which includes Paris, Montreal, Bangkok, Kansas City, Las Vegas. It's kind of a random list, but the magazine is really excited about the NCAA Women's Final Four, the Solar Eclipse in April, the Pan American Masters Games, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction ceremony, as well as the big expansion at the Cleveland Museum of Natural History, and all sorts of major renovations that the Renaissance Cleveland Hotel will be debuting. Yeah, is it just anything? How could the solar eclipse compete with anything that's going on in Bangkok or or Las Vegas? <laughs> <laughs> is it just our turn? Uh, the, these magazines just kind of rotate through, and every four or five years we make a list. I don't know. I mean, I've never seen Akron make the list, so <laughs> I, I guess that wouldn't make a big city list. I, I feel like there are a lot of things going on in Cleveland next year, and obviously, I. You know, we have Destination Cleveland. They have a visitors bureau that probably makes pitches to magazines like this. And they look at it and they're like, oh, Cleveland looks kind of cool. You know, Lake Erie looks great. So, yeah, well, I think it probably is our turn. Didn't we have a convention of travel writers in, though, like maybe last year or during the summer where we said this could be the upshot in reintroducing all that's of these? That's true. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. I wonder if that's what did it. They came and they said, "Wow, Cleveland's hot. Let's 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 do it." That would prove... maybe we're going to make some Irish magazines list a place to go because of the the Aer Lingus flight and all the Irish uh, tourism writers we got to come over to. We're probably not going to make any list of state parks to visit because oh, we're fracking under them now. So <laughs> if you'd like to see industry mix with your parks, Ohio's the place to go. And Mike DeWine would frack under Yosemite if he could somehow. It's, it's just amazing. So funny. I used to get this magazine because, you know, like if you have extra airline points, you can get magazines for free. And I, I do love thumbing through print magazines. I couldn't get this one anymore because it just made me too like jealous of everything I'm never going to do. But um, so it's not like this is a budget travel. This is the high end. So we'll see if that translates to a lot more visitors. 
A badge of honor for Cleveland. You're listening to Today in Ohio. We're closing out the week. We will only have episodes on Monday and Tuesday next week. We're taking off for the holiday like many others are. So we'll be here Monday and Tuesday next week and return the following Monday. Have a good weekend. Come on back Monday for another discussion of the news. Thanks, Laura. Thanks, Layla. Thanks, Lisa. Thank you for listening.